Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Canine's Talking Sense. This episode, I get to sit down with Simon Prinz. Simon is a Dutch police canine scent dog handler, trainer, and now supervisor. He and I made friends with each other uh, many years ago, actually in 1999, uh, when I got to go out to Nunspeet and visit the scent dog training center. Since then, our paths have uh, crossed here and there, uh, mostly through social media and things like that. But we also have had similar journeys where the dynamics of our jobs and the demands of what is asked of us to do with dogs, uh, again, was very similar. His was uh, very far-reaching, and we'll talk about it, where uh, they needed a dog to go out and search long distances away from the handler, but be controlled by technology devices such as audible tones, radio, and so forth. So because of that, he learned many uh, methods, but found that science and psychology was the true path to success and what showed as most reliable. Um, Same for me, as I was required to do things with dogs within the Naval Special Warfare Program that these dogs needed to be on top of their game, and we needed strong reliability. And the best way we got that was applying true principles based on science and psychology. So before we get to the episode, I also wanted to take some time and thank all of you, one, for the great feedback that you have about this podcast, and two, on the recent webinar I did with Stacy Barnett. I was humbled by how many people uh, showed interest and downloaded the episodes. Uh, The episodes were about uh, detection using cognition, and I spent two different uh, webinars, part one and part two, discussing the principles, the hows and whys, and application and understanding of using these uh, techniques or basically just the information we get from dogs and how to apply that better for detection work. So very, very humbled by how many people were interested and downloaded and what's going to be great. We have uh, another two-parter coming up specifically about the cognitive testing. So that way many of you who had questions and wanted to see it, we can, or I will show you uh, through some of the videos that I have of what I do, what I'm looking for, what we see, in these different brain games, but the information it gives me about each dog helps me prepare as a trainer and how to best work that dog as I create scent puzzles or as I create uh, detection problem solving uh, between the handler and dog. So uh, that's upcoming. That'll be in the month of October, uh, so a few weeks away. Of course, that'll be posted all over social media and everywhere else uh, as we get closer to that time. And then last thing is um, the success of this podcast has also taken me by surprise. So I have lots more episodes already recorded, and I want to get them out to you guys. Uh, I took on this endeavor 
strictly by my own means, uh, my own resources, and as you guys have heard through the uh, <laughs> increase in technology as I've had over the past uh, few months, um, financially, uh, it's been out of my pocket as I do this. So the beginning stuff was some older uh, pieces of equipment, and now I've upgraded to better gear. Uh, but I've done this all because I want to share information. So I kind of been doing this like uh, PBS style, where I'm doing it, it's on my time, uh, my expenses, and so forth. But I want to be able to share more with you and at least a little more frequency. Uh, so uh, what I'm proposing is anybody who's interested in donating to this podcast, um, I will put a link in the show notes, and I will tell you guys it's PayPal and it's CPF two one three seven at gmail.com. That's my PayPal ID. Anybody who donates $25, I will showcase or put in the social media about what you do or your company name or what have you. Anybody who does $50 or more, I will do a full ad here on the podcast talking about your company, your service, your product. And Anybody can donate any amount. Every little bit helps, as they say. I just want to be able to put out more content. And how that works is I pay a fee every month for the editing, but I also have to pay fees for data. So that's why I typically do two episodes a month because that's the amount of data I've paid for and that's what we can cover. So if I pay more, I can use more data, and put out more episodes. Again, no one has to do anything. We're having a great time doing this podcast, but I do have more episodes. Uh, I don't want to stretch them out for too far away. Uh, I get a lot of questions by you guys for uh, input as to who to bring on. There's some great people I have already lined up, and there's more I want to do. So My goal, if through that donation process works, I can put out more episodes uh, per month. So, like I said, totally up to you guys. I'm very happy doing this. This is a lot of fun. I have no problem, you know, doing my expenses and and uh, my equipment. Doing this, it's fantastic. Um, But if we want to do more, I just need help from you guys to make that happen. So, enough about that. Again. This is episode 13. This is a great one. Simon Prinz shares lots of great information. As usual, if you have questions after this episode, feel free to contact me at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverstateK9.com. Ford at SilverstateK9.com. Now, on to the episode. Hello, welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing a good friend of mine, Simon Prinz. Simon and I have known each other, as we were just talking ago, uh, 20 years now. And this came about during my time in the military where I was stationed in Germany. 
and the power of the internet back in those days, as new as it was, uh, Simon and I had found each other and he had given me an invite to come out to Nunspeed where he worked. So I spent uh, just about a week out there and got to see a lot of really, uh, to us at that time, revolutionary things in detection dog work, but to them was very normal. Uh, and today now is considered in some cases old what was being done. But Simon was a part of a, uh, a research project at that time. I got to watch a little bit of it, but I'll let him go into that further here coming up. Simon, welcome to the show. Cameron, thank you very much. I'm so happy to talk to you. Well, in you and I, we've been trying to make this happen for a little bit of time, and I'm glad to see we did. But for our listeners who uh, may have seen you through social media or maybe been lucky enough to attend some of your lectures that have been out there, but go ahead for those who don't know, just let us know what your history and your background is and, and what you've done, that kind of stuff, and we'll go from there. Oh, Cameron, if I start to talk about the history and my past and the background, then I go way back and then I realize that we are getting really old, Cameron. Time flies. <laughs> That's so true. Let's, let's jump back uh, when I started with police dog training. It was in uh, 1993. That's a long time ago. I mm -hmm. uh, was working in the police force. I really liked to work with a patrol dog in that time because I was running a lot. And I thought a dog can help us. He can catch the bad guys for us. So that was my introduction. But before that, I was working with hunting dogs, and hunting dogs were really my passion. And mm -hmm. I wanted to combine the hobby I had with hunting dogs into the police world. So starting as a patrol dog handler, finally I was there. Then I was a little bit shocked about all the punishment that was used in uh, the traditional training in that time. Mm -hmm. And if I jump into the future now, I see a lot of changes going on. But in that time, 1993... A lot of uh, coercion training was going on, something mm -hmm. I really didn't like. So after two, three years, I was hired by um, another unit. They were doing some really special things with dogs. At least I wanted to start it, and they had no trainers to do it. So they asked me if I could do it. I was saying yes, but I had no clue, no idea how to do it yet because they were asking me things by... Uh, running dogs with radio collars, with cameras on the head, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, really uh, exciting detection things, uh, focusing on hard surface tracking. So a lot of innovative thing, uh, things in that time. Now yeah. we talk about that uh, in an open way. You can see a lot on social media also. We are not so secretive anymore. Mm -hmm. But in that time, it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, really a big adventure for us. Yeah. That was in the time that we met also. Yes. It was very cutting uh, edge back then to have a dog running around with a camera on its head, uh, searching at the same time yeah. and being directed by a radio. Yeah, that was really, really fun to do. Really fun to uh, do the research uh, to make sure that animals uh, would love the job that we are asking them to do. Because one thing for sure when I started the program was that I knew that coercion training would not give us the results that we were looking for. So you have to imagine if you send a dog out there 100, 200 meters away in the terrain where the dog was never been before, it can be dark, it can be noisy with shooting, it can be very destructive, then you need to have a very good relation with the dog. And mm -hmm. as soon as he's 10 meters away, you cannot touch him anymore. Yeah. So that was the big challenge for me at that time. Yeah, without a doubt. And and for the listeners, basically what Simon was required to do was take a dog, 
send it out a significant distance out from him, direct it only by radio signal, and be able to also see what it sees through a camera attached to the dog in yep. a very, you know, whatever unique situation there was. Like he said, whether there's shooting going on, it was supposed to be like, like an anti-terrorism type dog or used in protection of that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. And I was lucky that I met uh, Bob Marion Bailey in that time. It was in 1997, yes. somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. I, was, um, I was doing a lot of research, finding uh, people that could help me to overcome the biggest problem that we had at the moment, especially building up a lot of confidence uh, far away from us. And mm-hmm. Bob Marion Bailey, I found them. And that was a, really a revelation for me. I never yeah. forget that I was flying to the U.S. in 1997, um after i think 20 or 30 phone calls because because bob rejected to work with me the first Mm -hmm. uh, things he asked me hey simon are you a police officer i said yes he said well police officers that are training with dogs we don't want to work with them i said why not he said because most of them are using a lot of punishment and we are not want to be involved in that sort of training so we just hang up the phone well (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little um, uh, persistent then, so I called yep. him back many times, and eventually he said, well, Simon, come over to us, come over to uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and uh, let, uh, let us have a conversation. So mm-hmm. I visited uh, Bob and Marion. Um, we met in a, in a restaurant, their favorite restaurant, the Brauhaus, a German uh, type of uh, food was served <laughs> over there. We had a good conversation, and the next morning he, they invited me in their living room, and there was a big table in the middle of the living room, and they asked me to walk with them to the barn, and there were a lot of chickens in the barn, and Bob pointed me out two chickens. He said, Simon, that are your chickens, and we are going to train chickens. Mm-hmm. Well, Cameron, I don't know if you ever have trained chickens. I had to, I had a similar story, which I'll tell in a second, but I had to do it with a green wing macaw. Oh, well, even <laughs> also with a macaw, you know, you need to have a lot of patience if you oh, want. Yes. Yeah. So you have to imagine on the big table over there, I had to do color discrimination, obstacle course, fetch, uh, a, a lot of different stimulus reversals, a lot of different uh, training principles. And I had to do that with a chicken. And you have to imagine there were no tiny electric collars that I could put around the neck. There were no uh, uh, prone collars that I could put around the neck. I was not allowed to hit the chicken. All was done with positive reinforcement, giving food, not giving food, using bridge signals. But the biggest um, uh, learning curve for me was to come up with a protocol, make a protocol. So uh, before I started to train, Bob and Marion gave me the task and you have to write your own training protocol. You have to collect data if you're training and you have to see if there's progress over there. And if there's no progress, you have to go back to the drawing board and make your protocols better. And that was for me the biggest learning curve in that time. And mm-hmm. in this time, I cannot imagine I train without a protocol, but uh, in that time, it was really important for me to start understanding that. And I also can um, remember that Bob was telling me in that time, uh, Simon, time is precious. And I thought, yo, Bob, old man, time is precious for you, but not for me. I was much younger yeah. at the time. But now, <laughs> nowadays, I'm getting uh, also uh, a lot older. And then I see, yeah, time is precious. Because yeah. the dogs that you saw in the beginning, 
I think we also showed you showed you something with lasers in the beginning because we started yes. with laser direction yep. directionals uh, be, because we didn't know how to do it with ra- radios in that time. But mm-hmm. uh, training, conditioning a dog to go for a laser 200 meters away and do something, some specific behaviors uh, to the laser next yep. to the laser, that costed us in that, at that time eight months. But by collecting data and um, rewriting our protocols all the time, Nowadays, we do it in three weeks. So that saves yeah. an enormous amount of uh, time, but also money. Absolutely. Am I talking too much, Cameron? No, perfect. Oh, this is all oh, great. Okay. Keep going. Otherwise, You're doing great. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise stop me. No, so, keep going. This is great information. Uh, Bob and I uh, started to work uh, much more. I asked Bob many times to come, over us, uh, to come over here in the Netherlands to help us here with the training program training the dogs, but also training the trainers. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, it grew out to a friendship. And I'm really proud to say that we are already more than 20 years working together. We see each other often a year, uh, mm-hmm. in all sort of places all over the world. It was very sad when Marion passed away, but I was yeah. really lucky that I could work with Marion. She was a phenomenal teacher but she was also a phenomenal human being, always so mm-hmm. humble. And I was so impressed because when you had to imagine, I was sitting there in the in the living room, Bob was instructing me how to work with the chickens, I had to write protocols, I had to collect data. It was really tough from early in the morning till uh, late in the evening. And then in the yeah. hotel, I had to write the protocols for the next day. And yeah. in between, Marion was giving me a theory at, uh, uh, the, the lessons he, he uh, explained in really deep um, conversations about stimulus reversals and that sort of stuff. And that was really interesting because if Marion and I were talking about something and then she said, oh, Simon, that's on uh, page uh, 136 in uh, that book. I said, what? And then she was going to the cupboard. She grabbed the book she, and she go to page 136 <laughs> and the text was there. She had a photographic memory. Was really wow. Impressive. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, to give you a little bit an idea how difficult it was, because I was a really good punishment trainer when I started into the police force. Everybody was using punishment, so I was a good punishment trainer also. But my body, my mind, my heart, my stomach told me this is not the way how to train animals. Yes. If you then meet. Uh, gurus like Bob and Marion Bailey and not only Bob and Marion Bailey I met a lot of other people also in that time and still I'm fortunate to meet a lot of people but if you meet that sort of people and you start to understand hey that punishment training I have to leave that behind and you are convinced that you want to change you are able to change but then you have to have to change also and it's difficult because I know it took me two three years before I really was convinced about the thing that I was doing at the time and I can give you mm-hmm. a nice example to um, make you yes, understand my struggle. Uh, we were training the first uh, radio-guided camera dog in that time. So 1997, I think, the dog was operational. That was new in our country. I think it was new for all of Europe, and maybe more than that. And yeah. my commander asked me, Simon, you can pick out one of the operations. We were doing a lot of operations in the, the whole week out an operation that you think okay we can use a dog there instead of a robot or instead of a human being so we had to do a reconnaissance somewhere there was a house it was in a the field the house was 150 meters away from a 
a spot where we could work in a covert uh, setting. And I uh, selected that operation because I convinced the commanders uh, I can send a dog to do a reconnaissance around the house over there. And wow. the commander said, well, okay, let's do it. But because it was the, for, uh, the first operational deployment, you have to understand that a lot of people were watching this because that was interesting for them. I was, of course, uh, nervous because that was the first time I was going to do that in operations. And I was sitting in a, in a, in a sort of a pool. I, well, I was COVID, nobody could see me. I uh, pointed the laser on the door of the house where the dog needed to go to, and mm -hmm. I sent the dog away with a lot of camera equipment. Eh? The dog was carrying so much equipment, expensive equipment. You can buy a, a Model 3 uh, Tesla in this time uh, from, uh, for the, for the uh, amount of money that he was carrying. I was sending yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I was sending yeah. the dog. Um, I was watching him with my night scope, and then suddenly I saw the dog uh, after 50 meters going to the left and going faster and faster instead of going straight to the door. Yeah. I couldn't understand what was going on, and I was uh, looking through my night scope, and I saw the dogs chasing rabbits. <laughs> can you imagine what's going on in your mind then, Cameron? Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. And you feel the eyes of all the people uh, uh, that were watching the whole operation. Oh, yeah. I could understand that my commander was not feeling really happy on the command station at that, uh, at that moment. Yeah, so, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we aborted uh, the operation. I finally uh, I, uh, uh, was able to get the dog back. I put the dog in the car. I was going back. To the unit, we had an evaluation that was not really nice. I was going home, I couldn't sleep, and I was watching my clock because we are normally six, seven hours in uh, ahead of Bob, and I was calling Bob in the afternoon when I thought, well, mine afternoon is morning when I thought he's awake. <laughs> I said, Bob, the whole shit positive reinforcement is not working at all. And uh, uh -huh. I told him what happened. And Bob said, well, Simon, go back to your barn, grab the big stick and uh, punish him. Good luck with it. Bye. Click, click, click. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you imagine I didn't do that, of course. And sure, yeah. I think it was a really good uh, decision uh, of, uh, of Bob to uh, confront me with my own behavior. And mm -hmm. he also explained me in a really subtle way, Simon, punishment will not solve these sort of problems for you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, eventually it took, I th what I was saying, I think two, three years before I really started to see uh, how I could uh, change my behavior because behavior sure. changing of the animals is not so important, uh, not so difficult. It's all about yeah. your behavior. People. Yeah, people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do uh, the most, uh, changing your behavior. And if you can do that faster and quicker, then you can have more success. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and your story is similar to what I went through when I uh, went to the West coast and became a trainer on the Navy SEAL program. Yeah. I quickly realized that the methods and things that I had learned up to that point weren't always going to work very well, especially in the capacity that those guys need the dogs to go work, which means like you said, the dog independently, doing things out away from you and be reliable at that. Yeah. So I had to come up with things as a trainer 
that would make me or have a better way of communicating and teaching the dogs what I wanted to do so that way they wanted to do it and like you said be happy to do it and not operate in a way based off of fear or in a way seeking or looking for a constant human involvement and that is a tough one because as we both know you know, especially in the professional side of the dog world, there's a lot of our mentality is, well, we can make the dog do this. We can help the dog by telling it this and go there and do that. And all it really does is take away the dog's reliability because when that's not present or the dog is stressed and you aren't there to give the answer or tell it what to do, it all kind of falls apart pretty quickly, especially on detection. So yeah, it was very similar in nature. And my goal was to, uh, I had to change and make adjustments to what I did. And uh, luckily enough, just before the year or two before I went to that program, I had uh, a friend that worked at SeaWorld and she had basically, uh, you know, saw what we were doing detection wise and just kind of asked me some questions like, why aren't you just making basically odor a target initially and then move the target around so then it has to hunt for it. And I thought to myself, huh, that's an interesting way of looking at that. And then she did something similar, which like you talked about with Bob Bailey. She's like, hey, I'm going to have you come over here and I want you to teach this green wing macaw how to, when you say stick him up, his wings will come up. Yeah. You know, it's like a bad guy, you take your yeah. little fingers out and you're like, stick him up. And then he would react. So she hands yeah. me the little thing of bird seed and says, go for it. And just yeah. like you said, I'm like, how do I make this happen? And I struggled for a while and she just sit there and laugh at me and, and looked at me, try to problem solve this in my head. And then she eventually showed me the small steps that you take, which was in that that case was just moving my fingers towards him. He reacted. And when he reacted, I would mark that and then reward him. And it just went from little step to little step after that to where eventually I was bring my hands up and go stick him up. My hands would come up and then he'd react. So it enlightened me on how to take a process that we would do back in the day, which to us as the human, oh, that's only two things. But really to the dog, those two things is almost 10 separate things you're trying to teach at one time. Yeah. And we never really paid attention to the smaller details of how to break it down into those uh, little miniature tasks. And then you link those together. And then the other big thing that was very different back at that time was the use of, you know, obviously we call it clicker, but the uh, marker training or bridge training. Yeah. And that was, you know, especially in the professional world, you know, oh no, we can't, you know, you're going to put a clicker in my hand. I'm not a, I'm not a doggy pet trainer. I don't need that stuff. And in every other aspect or every other animal training seek, you know, whether you're doing, uh, anything else in the dog world, pretty much they use bridge or markers, either be a clicker or a whistle, what have you, anything else in animal training, they use that. So it's just highly resistant in our professional world because of the mental association of, if you have a clicker in your hand, you must be just a pet dog trainer. So, so from that point on, I really started trying to learn and understand the marker training. And it was a game changer for me. How have you seen the use of, because I saw a video uh, not too long ago, even the Dutch at, at the school there uh, use the clicker now. And maybe, maybe they've used it for a long time, but for me, it was new seeing it being done at that point. But how have you seen the use of a marker or a bridge uh, change over, let's say, the past 10 years or so? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I cannot train without uh, bridge signals. I think bridge signals are really yeah. important. I think it's a fundament in the training that you do. And it's a pity that people are so judgmental about if you have a clicker in your hand, then you must be a pet a dog trainer or whatever. Well, mm -hmm. people, I could say I have learned tons of information from pet dog trainers. And I'm really glad that you are telling the story about your Makar in the SeaWorld uh, training. Because you can learn so much from other people around us. And mm -hmm. I think that's a big uh, one for the professional world. Keep um, uh, looking into the training world with a really uh, wide open view because we can learn so much from each other. Uh, the, the bridge signals, the, the clickers, the market training, whatever, how you call it, uh, I can yep. see it more and more coming into the professional world. And I'm really happy that I see it over there. Same I here. Also, that people are really uh, reluctant, especially the, the, the old uh, trainers. They really have a big problem with it. And it's not so difficult to understand. In the beginning, I had some uh, question marks because I thought, why are people not picking this up? But if you then understand that people are uh, really like to stay in a little comfort zone, so they do something for 20 or 30 years, they were successful in that, but they have no idea that they can be more successful or faster or uh, getting stronger behavior. But what, what they are doing is uh, okay. So they stay in a comfort zone. And if there are young generation trainers is coming and show them something about bridge signals, they are not so willing to change because what they are doing was okay. And something way out of topic of animal training, but that is uh, that was also opening my mind, was um, the work of Brene Brown. She's a shame expert um, uh, in your country, and she's writing a lot. She's uh, telling a lot. She do a lot of uh, um, presentations about shame and guilt. And if you yeah. read her work and you go into the dog training world, especially the professional world, you can see there's some shame and guilt going on there. There are a lot of trainers like me that were really good punishment trainers and maybe still are punishment trainers, but they also have some shame and guilt for that. So if we give them um, a handout, if we, if we reach our hands to them and we help them, maybe they can also start to see the really uh, great things that you and I have seen in that time. That mm -hmm. Wow, this is wonderful. We can manipulate behavior by just using a marker signal. We can get faster behavior. We can get stronger behavior. So, yeah, I see a, a big change at the moment. But for me, you know, it's not going fast enough, but I try to be true. <laughs> I try to be patient like I do with the animals. Oh yeah, and we we have to because you know it's a, for the industry. From what I see, it's 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 so steep in its tradition or its beliefs of of doing things. And the one thing I get all the time when it came to this change was, "Oh my gosh, you're making the dog leave source to come to you for reward, or making the dog leave source for reward, depending on where the reward goes to or is at." And I'm like, okay, I understand what you're seeing, but could we not agree what the class conditioning that's happening? I've taken something, which is that signal and I paired it with reward. So then later on when the dog hears that signal, it's going to react as if the rewards being presented or anticipation of that. Yeah. And you know, they can agree with classical conditioning. So I said, okay, so whether I'm throwing the ball over the dog's head or I'm giving the dog the signal, I'm having 
physiological reactions happen that equal the same thing. Yeah. And they, they get it to a certain level, but because they're so in their tradition and I feel it's so much strong, Oh, it's gotta be here. It's gotta be here. But then I'm like, don't you see all the problems that have come from that handler moving and, you know, dogs anticipating the movement, you know, the handler's hands, body positions, all these other things that are major players in what the dog is now using for its information versus just going to reward or going to source of odor and then uh, hearing a signal. And so that's probably the number one argument. Is that something you hear quite often as well? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, in the dog world, there are a lot of paradigms, a lot of assumptions. And there are stories going around in the dog world that I think, hey, science already helped us to understand what was going on. And science already told us that it's not true what people are saying about that. But it's really hard to overcome that sort of things. Um it is not so difficult if you go back to animal science, to the, the studies that have been done at, at the beginning of the, at the 20th century. We talk about primary reinforcers. That is everything that an animal needs to survive. Mm-hmm. The most easy part to understand it. So food, water, sex, but also comfort, uh, social play, that sort of things. Then we have secondary reinforcers. Secondary reinforcers are balls, uh, cones, uh, biting sleeves, whatever. And we combine that with a bridge or a marker. So what we do, if we are working with animals, then the bridge, the marker, is only a signal but is telling the animal good things are coming, your reinforcement is coming. And then, of course, you can choose that the animal is allowed to run to you, uh, to grab the reinforcement from you. You can choose that you're going to the animal to uh, reinforce, but it's a really clear signal. That's the only purpose. It's a really clear signal to say, okay, good things are coming. If you go back to the bridge and uh, bridge the marker uh, training, uh, you have to imagine if you send a dog somewhere uh, 10 meters away, and he's doing a really good thing and you want to reinforce it it's not always possible to throw a reinforcement to the dog correct as well even i think dogs are not stupid they can hear the reinforcement is going uh, you are throwing something they hear your sure. pet, they hear your arm movement they hear your body movement and they know it's coming so to be crystal clear for the animal, as soon as you do something really good, then I see it as a photograph. You make the photo exactly on the, on the right moment. You click the clicker, you blow the whistle, yep. and on that moment, the dog starts to understand, hey, if I do this, I will get my reinforcement. That's nice. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's jump a little bit into superstitious behavior. Okay. Yeah, because that's connected to the bridge and the market training. Um, superstitious behavior I often give an example there's a a soccer player the soccer player is going to play a really important match on Saturday evening he's sitting in his dressing room he opens his bag his wife packed his bag for him he opened his bag and there are no two blue socks there's a blue sock and a red sock so he's a little bit embarrassed because all his colleagues are wearing blue socks but okay he's entering the soccer field with a blue sock and a red sock and okay. Cameron, that evening, he's playing the match of his life, and he scores four times. He's the man. He's the, the, the man of the mm-hmm. match. What do you think the next week will be in his uh, back for a color of sock? Blue sock and red sock. Yeah. <laughs> so superstitious behavior. And superstitious behavior is what we see a lot in the dog world, especially in the detection dog world. The dogs are doing something, and they start to understand 
A, I don't need to only put my nose on the source, but I also have to scratch a little bit and I have to move my head a little bit and I do something with my butt. I, I wiggle my butt a little bit and A, mm -hmm. the reinforcement is coming because all those little behaviors are going so quick. So we are often not aware of what's going on. And that is all because we are not able to uh, pinpoint the exact moment that we want to reinforce. For me, it's important yes. that the detection dog will put his nose on the source, not against the source, but near the source. And then I want to make sure that the animal starts to understand, hey, if I do this, not touching it, not too far away, but really close to the source, then I get my reinforcement. And the marker is helping me enormously with that. Absolutely. That brings up another question I get a lot of times is, so in what I had to do, I would always initiate all the initial training with the clicker. Yeah. And then I would phase that to the verbal mm -hmm. uh, marker. Why? And, uh, you know, obviously in, in the world I had with those guys, oh, yeah. right. having the clicker on them and their gear was yeah. not going to be practical in the sense because it could fall off, lose, whatever. Yeah. So by having the verbal, they always at least had that with them. They did have a whistle. Then yeah. that whistle would be used in anything very distance related it was a silent it was a dog whistle so yeah. it wasn't audible by everybody else but the dog could hear it now that one was used like i said for distance but the common thing i get too is people that will say um or what's your opinion on using a mechanical device whistle or clicker compared to a word from it from the person what's the difference that you see in in that mm. When it, comes, when it comes to using a bridge good question uh, first the word is not always consistent so okay if i say to you okay then it's a clear okay but i can say okay or okay okay yeah it's all depending on the state of mind i have so mm -hmm. if i'm training and i say okay but i just had a really bad uh, phone call or a bad conversation with somebody my okay is different than the normal okay and if I'm scared, if I'm nervous, then my okay is also sounding a little bit different. So I want to, and that's everything I do in training, I want to have it as clear as possible. So a bridge signal, always uh, in a mechanical way, in a clicker, a whistle, or whatever, electronic, it will be really clear. And mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of uh, trainers, they use their uh, verbal marker not always consistent enough. So they often get verbal marker they don't give reinforcement and if they have a, a, a clicker in the hand they start to understand oh if i click now i have always uh, i need always to reinforce the animal so True. consistency is an important one but there's another very important one imagine you send your dog 50 meters to uh, an object to um, do some uh, sniffing uh, behavior yeah mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as, no, no, let's give another example, a target behavior. So I send a okay. dog to a target. The target is 50 meters away. So I send the dog away. He's going for the target in the terminal maneuver. So the behavior that I want to reinforce is touch the target with your nose for five seconds duration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So travel 50 meters, uh, stop in front of the target, touch it with your nose, wait five seconds, and then I want to reinforce the animal. If I, after, after five seconds, if I click my clicker, and that is the bridge, the marker for the dog to say, okay, this is finished, I'm going back to Simon to get the reinforcement, mm -hmm. then it's not over yet, because the dog still needs to travel 50 meters back. Yeah. Traveling 50 meters back, there can be a lot of things happening. 
So it mm-hmm. it can be uh, possible that the dog is traveling back with a very slow speed. What I don't want, I want a high speed. It can sure. uh, happen that the dog is uh, walking back and after five meters he's looking to the left because he sees a rabbit that he decides mm-hmm. to move on to me. Um, it can happen that the dog is going slow back. After five meters, he's looking to a rabbit. He's passing uh, the 10 meter uh, distance and then he's looking up for a bird and then finally he's with me. As soon as I give the reinforcement over there, I did not only uh, reinforce the hitting on the target, but I also reinforced looking at the rabbits, uh, walking slow back and looking at the bird because the click uh, and my reinforcement are not connected on that moment. There's something in between. That's the and the, the reason that we call a marker, we call it a bridge, because it will bridge the terminal maneuver with the reinforcement. Uh, yeah. There. Um, so I like to use, in that sort of circumstances, I like to use a whistle, because yes. as soon as the dog is hitting on the target, I whistle, and I keep the whistle on as long as the dog is uh, yep. back with me. Because then I can gain speed and I can gain concentration. And I, there's another yes. thing, if the dog stops halfway or 25 meter point, I can also stop my whistling. That is something you will not find in the books, but it's really effective if you're working with animals. This episode is brought to you by Exet Canine. Exet Canine possesses a broad range of unique expertise in canine training and handling with applications both in scientific and operational capacities. Exet Canine also specializes in third-party independent canine certifications, assessments, and validations for both U.S. government and private business. Their staff understands individual requirements and is proficient in providing optimal canine solutions. Their team has active DOD secret and Department of Homeland Security sensitive security information security clearances. We pride ourselves on upholding the highest standards of integrity, discretion, and professionalism. Also at Xset K9 is the TAD device or the training aid delivery device. Exit Canine is proud to introduce the first commercial product, the training aid delivery device created by U.S. Army and is designed by canine trainers and scientists. The TAD can bring your canine training to the next level. The design considerations ensure all components of the TAD are NASA outgassing compliant. It's inert, it's highly compatible with most training aids. It's rugged enough for daily use and training cleaned according with EPA standard methods, capable of even being decontaminated and deodorized of human scent and any other environmental odors. The TAD device is an awesome device. I have seen it firsthand. It's a product that allows your training aid to be protected, but it allows it to off-gas the target odor that's inside it without being contaminated with outside scents. So there's a membrane that allows odor to get out, but not odors to get in. So I can tell you firsthand by seeing it, this is a great device. This is a great company. If you get a chance, go visit their website, Xset Canine. That is spelled www.excetk, the number nine.com. Again, www.excetk9.com. The website will also be listed in our show notes and also in our social media feed. Top Dog Police Canine Training and Consulting, K9 
Canine Supervisors course. This class will offer you the best outline of information you will find in any supervisor course throughout the country. Their instructors will teach you from experience and have their resumes to back it up. You will see the training in the following areas. Canine Legal Update, Supervisor Legal Update, Handler Selection, Problem Handlers, Canine Selection, Canine Unit Pros and Cons, Why Do Canine Units Fail, SWAT versus Canine, Liability versus Reality, Critical Incident Review, Canine Unit Record Keeping, Class Scenarios with a Hands-On Approach, and then Canine Deployment Reviews. These two instructors, Ron Cloward, who is retired lieutenant from Modesto, and Bob Eden, the one many of you guys know from the International Canine Conference, from the CATS program for record keeping. Both of these gentlemen have a vast level of experience, especially when it comes to managing, supervising canine programs. They are well diverse in their experience with agencies throughout the United States that they've helped or consulted with. Let these individuals help you by you attending their Canine Supervisors course. To receive more information, just go to their website, topdog97.com, T-O-P-D-O-G-9-7.com, and look up the supervisor course information. We will be hosting one in October in Las Vegas. Uh, We'll have some details to follow, and that will be posted also on social media. Again, if you get a chance, check out Canine Supervisors Course, hosted by Top Dog Police Canine and Consulting. This episode is brought to you by Silver State Canine. Silver State Canine, located in fabulous Scent City, Las Vegas. Silver State Canine is a premier education and training facility. We understand many of you, however, can't get to Las Vegas. So, Silver State Canine has created our mobile classroom. We come to you. We now offer many of the classes and seminars we've held in Las Vegas, but now we can do it at your location. Some of the classes that we offer are our canine cognition class. Utilize these tests that we show you to help you pick a better dog, or if you already have your dogs, use these tests to understand your dog better. Do they have strong memory? Are they a problem solver? This information is vital to help you train your dog better. We also offer our detection through cognition class. If you're a detection dog handler, whether it be professional and or nose work, this class is a must. We give you information that you can apply that is based on science and communication so that way you can enhance your training based on cognition. We also offer our problem solving through cognition. Again, taking these cognitive tests, applying them to your training will help you problem solve some of the many common issues that are out there. In addition to that, we have our science of odor class. We also have our explosive identification and safety class. For anybody, whether you're a sport enthusiast or you're professional, we have our search strategy classes. These classes help you come up with a methodology based on practical and proven methods to help you enhance your search strategies when deploying or putting your dog through a trial. We offer these classes and many more. For further information, please contact us at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK9.com. That's Ford at SilverStateK9.com.
that, that was exactly what we went through in the program I was in. When you know the dog's at a distance, it indicated that it had found something. Yeah. We used the whistle, and the whistle would stay on until they're coming back. Because not only that, sometimes when the dog was sent out to go do the search, position of the handler changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, due to whatever circumstance, they moved someplace else. Yeah. So as the dog was working, the handler's now in a different location. So the whistle did the two things, which was, like you said, bring the uh, dog's uh, speed to you yeah. pretty quickly because they continue to follow that sound. And two, they could follow that sound because now the handler's in a different position than where the, where the dog remembered they took off from. Yeah. So, yeah, no, the whistle was very, very powerful with, uh, in that sense, absolutely, and did exactly like you said, because like, if it was just one, getting a clicker to be heard 50 meters away would be pretty difficult, but uh, even even still, a distance where it can be heard, it, you know, it doesn't, in that situation, does not elicit the same level of excitement and, and energy or motivation as the, uh, as the whistle can do when you're at a distance like that. Yeah. So with, with that, then another common thing that we're kind of touching on is handler influence. And a lot of times in detection work, uh, there's, it, there's a feeling or just tradition of training where the handlers are very involved in the search with the dog. They're presenting every, let's say, three to four feet, low and high, low and high, constantly throughout the search area. Um, what do you see that typically comes from a dog team where the handler is heavily involved in the search pattern, uh, where they're doing a lot of directing, uh, a lot of telling the dog, check here, check there, that kind of thing? Well, to begin with, I would never um, uh, do a search when it's not double blind for me and for my Good. dog. So, yep. of course, when you start, you need to know where it is because you have to learn the behaviors of the dog. You have to see what's going on, but only I do that two or three times and then I stop with it. Then I will go double blind, not blind, but double blind. And blind for me, mm -hmm. the difference in that is that if we work together, Cameron, and you are going into an area, into a house, and you uh, hide some explosive <laughs> narcotics for me, and I'm coming um, with my dog, you're standing there and I'm doing a search over there, then it's blind because you know where it is and the dogs are mm -hmm. intelligent enough that if the dog look at me and he think, hey, Simon doesn't know where it is, then the dog is capable to scan your body movement and your body language to find out where it is. Double blind means Absolutely. you prepare a, a search for me and you're going out of the house and you say, Simon, it's over there, good luck with it. And then, mm -hmm. then it's much more exciting because then I don't yep. know where it is. I cannot help my dog with body language or whatever. And we are doing a real thing. Then the other part, the other question you asked me, how much uh, involvement do I give? So how, many, how much do I point? I see in your country, well, and I don't see everything and everywhere. So that's my, sure. my general thing I see. I see a lot of Handlers are pointing out a lot. They're really active with the dogs. They're running with the dogs on a short leash and they're pointing everything. And then I think, ah, oh, man, let the dog do his work because the dog is so capable to do his work. But sometimes the dog needs to have a little bit more time to investigate something a little bit more, longer than you. Mm -hmm. And I really believe if you set up your detection program in a good way, then dogs are capable to uh, do a lot uh, on themselves. So we like to train them on really small amounts 
of course we do the big amounts also, but we like to track them on yep. small amounts. That as soon as they pick something up, they work it out themselves. Because dogs have really a problem in making decisions. They are mental not so hard as we think. Decision making mm-hmm. is the most difficult thing for them. So imagine you have seen the sand lineups in our country when you visit us. Yes. When we, have, mm-hmm. when we had really a brutal, aggressive Melanoir that everybody was afraid of, then we asked the dog to do some scent identification tasks. Even if the dog was not uh, uh, going to work in that discipline, we did that mm-hmm. because if the dog was making decisions, the dog started to uh, become in another state of mind. So dogs are really capable to make decisions, and as soon as you start to help them, you're setting yourself up for failure. You shoot yourself in the foot. So let it go. And of course, in the beginning, it's difficult. It's difficult to uh, yeah. teach dogs to make decisions. But then you go back to the drawing board and you make the setup a little bit easier. So you make it in a way yeah. that the dog can make a decision. And then you make it a little bit harder and harder and you see where is the breaking point? Where is the point that you say, okay, now I have to step in as a handler. And you will learn a lot. But again, here involved collect data. Uh, yeah. a little a logbook in your in your uh, pocket and start to understand what is really important to understand from your dog. No, and that's and that's so true. I mean, one of the things that I always, you know, teach when I do my classes is I tell everybody you start with a very low number of variables in the beginning, which allows a dog to find success faster. Yeah. And then you slowly increase your variables and allowing the dog to problem solve that. Mm-hmm. And the research I've been doing at Duke University with the canine cognition has taught me a lot of that. And what it has also taught me is that not every dog is the same when it comes to problem solving and making an inference and using their memory. So depending on, you know, for me, I always do these cognition tests prior to training the dog. So that way it already gives me some insight as to this dog's uh, mental ability, where, where it's at. It's a dog who's very mentally flexible. And despite receiving reinforcement numerous times at one location, it can realize I'll go someplace else if I'm not getting it there, as opposed to the dog who's motivated so much that they won't leave a spot even when there's no more reinforcement happening there, but they're convinced this is where it's at. So uh, by having understanding that cognitive ability of that particular dog, setting up training that allows success, like you said, increases your training or, or sorry, decreases your training time, allows you to get things done more proficiently, but also done faster because the dog has a much clearer understanding of what that task is because you set up training as a success way, successful way for the dog to, to problem solve. Um, the, to, to your question or to your comment about double blind, here's some things that our trainers always say to me. Well, if I don't go with them and they make a mistake, I, you know, I need to be there to, to know uh, what happened. And my thing is, well, if you've done your sound training before this, doing a double blind shouldn't be that big of a deal. And of course, we already know handlers are nervous when they come into a double blind because there's no one there. Just as you said, as the dog uses us for information, we use the people in the environment who know the answer for information. So when all of a sudden the trainer stops moving or the trainer stops talking or doing whatever, that becomes a, a at a minimum a subconscious cue to that handler that, hey, something was different now. I should probably either go back to that area or do something different. Um, and you take that away when the handler can only walk into that space and search up by themselves and walk out and tell you what they found something. And But 
what, how would you address a trainer who says, no, 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 there's no way I can let my, I, it's training. I need to be in there. I need to watch what goes on. Well, I'm, you know, Dutch people can be really rude. Eh? I think we are really honest instead of rude. But <laughs> yes, we are really rude. I handle with that sort of trainers. I say, well, then you're not suitable for operational work. I agree. Yeah. It, it, I cannot make it in a different way. I cannot say it more clear. I cannot say it more subtle. You're not capable yep. to do your operational task. Because operational is you're on your own. You're doing yeah, it. Yeah, but you know? not only you're on your own and you're doing it, but if you make a mistake, you're dead. And you're True. Or without a Yeah, especially if you're a bomb dog handler, without a doubt. Yeah, and you know, you, you yeah. have done work in programs that people will die if dog makes mistakes. Yes. I do still uh, work in programs that people will die. So you you cannot go for good enough. You need to go for really good because otherwise you're dead. Yeah. And as soon as you start to understand that sort of principles and as soon as you start to really uh, be enthusiastic about double blinds, it's really addicting. It's really addicting. Oh, for blinds. sure. Are you familiar with the – yeah, of course – it's a stupid question, but you're familiar with the research they done uh, with uh, a church that they were sending in detection. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Lisa Litt study. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love things. I love that sort of thing. Oh, and, and it's funny you bring that yeah. up because recently I've been bringing a researcher from Texas Tech with yeah. me to the different uh, canine uh, training sessions I have or my classes. Yeah. And initially, the first reaction she always gets when she asks the handlers to participate in a review is they are very nervous about the whole Lisa Lit thing. Oh, and to, 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 their, to the argument they also bring to the equation is, okay, yes, maybe she has the best intentions. She, she really wants to help us out. But what if an attorney somehow wants this information or asks for this information or what have you, and that gets turned against us? My thing is we should all collectively want to be better. And research is going to happen whether you're a part of it or not. I, my suggestion is be a part of it so that way you're out ahead of it and you know what's going on versus playing catch up later on. Perfect. That's the way how I see it. I, I was really shocked that Swift Dog was uh, uh, preparing lawsuits against her because I thought, oh, you have to hug her. You have to ask her to help because she's uh, making something visual that we are not so aware of in that time. So yeah, I did the same experiment over here two years ago. As I we hired a house somewhere on the on a vacation site. Uh, there were a lot of other people involved over there. We did the same experiment, and the outcome was really shocking. Uh, yeah. I was really shocked, and I was even more shocked that the handlers started to put some knives in my back, as we say it in Holland, eh? <laughs> that they yeah. were not willing to change. They were not willing to learn something about it, but they were... Um, yeah, the way to become aggressive, emotional, even. And oh, what yeah. we do, uh, we do a look with dogs. We train dogs go out there. Good things are out there. So in the middle of the night, two hundred meters away, in a big building, in the in the woods or whatever, go out there. Good things are happening over there. That's what we put in the minds of dogs. We are putting in the mm -hmm. minds of the dog, and we're answering the question: What's in it for me? If we send a dog away, the dog knows what's in it for me. There will be something good going on. I do the same with my handlers. I send them into buildings, into double blind searches. It can be inside a building. It can be outside. But there will be good things happening over there. 
they will not find everything, but they will find a number amount of things. And if they're coming yeah. back with things, I reinforce them. And the reinforcement can be small. It can be a handshake. It can be a little hug. Sometimes you put a sure. bottle of whiskey on it or a dinner or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you <laughs> challenge each other. And you know, in the beginning, yes. they don't dare to do it. And then they start to understand, hey, if I find nothing, Simon will not shoot me in my knees if I'm coming back. Then <laughs> we have a little homework to do. And eventually they start really to say, can you do a double blind for me? Because I want to do a, mm-hmm. a double blind. And that's really fun if you can um, achieve that sort of mindset with each other. But we meant one yes. thing. I, I was writing something down because we were discussing, you were discussing, uh, no telling about your work uh, on the Duke University. What surprised me, uh, Cameron, is that we in the dog world are not really um, familiar with the, fight, uh, with, with the fact that dogs have different personalities like humans. Yeah. We all think a dog is a dog and they're all the same, but no, there are differences. No. And not only difference in male and female, but there are also differences in personalities. But, and the same what we see in humans. So we have five or six different learning uh, principles or learning methods. Uh-huh. We see the same in dogs. And Absolutely. I'm really happy that Duke and some others are focusing into that now because we can learn a lot from that. It would be ideal. And yeah, you descri- you were describing it and we do that also. We test dogs in a certain way. But it's interesting if you ask people all over the world, how do you test dogs? You get all different uh, uh, answer oh yeah it would be ideal that we can set it up that we say okay this is becoming an explosive dog and this will become a narcotic dog and this will become an mm-hmm. dog and whatever absolutely yeah. no and and what you what you how that started for me was obviously within just like the navy seals themselves there's a high rate of people that don't do not make it and there's only a select few that yeah. do in the dog program, it was very similar. You know, we could look at a lot of dogs and then narrow that down and pick, let's say, our top three. And we would take those three and we'd train them for a while. And then through that training, we'd realize, okay, th- these will make it, these won't. So our, our rate of washout was significant. It was 70% and up sometimes. Yeah. And part of that research that we got to do with Duke University was the first thing was establish the adding these cognitive tests to the typical selection tests that we already did. So we didn't change anything as far as what we were doing initially because, and it's like everybody, everybody looks at dogs motivation is their environmental pressures. How can they handle this? How, how strong is that? But we never looked at intelligence. We never looked at how smart they were. So when we, when I added these cognition tests to say, now I've picked out through the traditional testing I picked out, I got my top two or three. I now do the cognitive tests to those top to those top dogs, and then and those tests aren't a pass or fail; they're just a insight as to what you have. Yeah. And based on knowing the kind of dogs that we need, I would work with the ones that have a strong ability to problem solve, because many times they're asked to go problem solve when there's nobody yeah. there. So a dog who is very good at making an inference and problem solving would be most successful through the training. And once we implemented that. We had a 34% increase in the dogs that made it from start to wow. finish. 
So from selection to getting out in the field and being operational, it was a 34% increase in when we did wow. that. The other aspect was I had a 30% decrease in training time yep. because now these dogs were learning better, learning faster, and I wasn't spending as much time spinning my wheels trying to problem solve things that I, you know, of course, had I known what I knew from the cognition tests, I would have been able to problem solve faster. But so we reduced training time, reduced or increased our ability to select the right dogs. And then that bled over to what I would do in training and the modifications I made in training because now, even and it's not like huge modifications, it's just smaller things that I'm doing because now I know this dog better mm -hmm. that I'm training for whatever the task is. So in most cases, obviously for me, it's going to be explosive and or narcotic detection, sometimes cadaver as well. And I see that there's a, by knowing that dog better, I can better set up my training to be successful or allow the dog to be successful in finding the right answer, especially in those beginning stages when they were first teaching things. Yeah. So yeah, big, big, uh, big change compared to what we used to do, uh, in, in the dog selection world and training world, you know, this cognition piece is fairly new in the process. You know, the it's doctor has been doing it for a little while now, and it was mostly focused in the uh, CCI and pet dog world, but he's done a lot of stuff with the Marine Corps, um, special operations, things like that now. And of course, we're going out and putting that show on the road and trying to teach people, law enforcement agencies, uh, people that do detection work, hey, it, it takes 25, 30 minutes to do these tests. By doing it, you're far better able to know the type of dog you have in front of you and to set up training to be successful for that. Wonderful. It's really important. No, it, it's it's a lot of fun, and and, and it's uh, and, and everybody loves doing it because it, it tells you about yeah. your dog. You know, one of the the groups that love it the most are the people that do the sport of nose work. Uh, they really get into it. They love going through those classes because they really enjoyed learning about their dogs. And in many cases, what they discover is stuff they already know, but they're able to see it in a way that's measured. Yeah. And because they can see it that way, it really helps them out. And, and I'll give you an example. One lady uh, determined, was able to figure out through a, a laterality test that we do that her dog was more left side dominant. Mm -hmm. So what she did was just change the way she did her search pattern. And when she changed her search pattern, her dog was so much more successful because she wasn't trying to make a right hand or left-handed dog a right-handed dog. She finally adjusted to what the dog's ability was or natural ability was. And it was so much more successful because the dog's like, thank God you're finally letting me do it the way I naturally want to do yeah. it. And uh, yeah. she saw really good dividends from yeah, that. Yeah, it's the same with tracking dogs. If they lose a track, they always go or searching on the left or searching on the right at the beginning. So these tests are really important that you know that. The more you know, how more successful you can work. Absolutely. So in this whole thing, let me add another part. Variable reward schedule. How important and uh, how do you guys implement uh, a variable reward schedule to your detection dogs? Yeah, well... Very simple. Go back to the operations. You cannot always reinforce in operations. So if you always reinforce in your training, then you set yourself up for failure in operations. Um, mm -hmm. But you have to be uh, clear enough and um, um, uh, wow! How can I say that? <laughs> Let me give you an example. I was in a, an sure. airport in Scandinavia somewhere. I was looking at some programs that the customs were doing with the detection dog. And one of the things I was um, looked at was the variable reinforcement schedules they were using for dogs that are finding money 
yeah, a lot of people are smuggling money. Okay. They put it in their trousers or whatever, or in the bag. And if mm-hmm. you're carrying more than 10,000 currency, local currency, you are, uh, are not, uh, you have to pay tax uh, above that. Sure. So uh, dogs were uh, standing there at the gate and people were passing by. And if the dog is uh, f- picking up a lot, uh, a large amount of money, he will follow some, a person like that, stop him. The handler will stop the person and say, please, sir, can you step out the line? I have some ask, uh, questions. Are you carrying money? So imagine, yeah, the dog is sitting there giving an alert. Hello, sir, um, customs, uh, are you carrying money? Uh, uh, yes, I'm carrying money. Are you carrying more than 10,000? No, I'm not carrying more than 10,000. Okay, then we have to ask you to step with us to the interrogation room. So two colleagues are coming there. They pick up the, the person. They go into the interrogation room. And the dog and the dog handler are standing outside. After 15 minutes, the people are coming back and they say, yeah, this uh, person is carrying too much money. Okay, how much money did he carry? Um, he was carrying 55,000 euros. Oh, that's way too much. So the dog handler yeah. put, uh, pulled out a, a little list out of his pocket and he's zooming with his finger. He said, oh, it's above 50. So then I give him this reward. And I thought, huh? I said, I, I was watching that and I was watching that several times and I saw there was a difference in reinforcement. So I asked... Um, the question, do you think it's possible for the dog, if you do an alert and 15 minutes or 20 minutes later, he will get a piece of sausage because that's comparing to the 50,000 bonus price instead of a little piece of uh, kibble because that's when it's mm-hmm. above 10,000. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's normal. Yep. I don't think that's possible for dogs also. No. no. We use uh, different uh, variables in a search. So not only... Uh, uh, after three or four times that we give a, give a reinforcement, but we also use different reinforcers for that. So uh, social reinforcers, kibble, kong, uh, ball, uh, whatever, you can make a list for your dog, but what is the strongest and what is the weakest reinforcer. But I believe you mm-hmm. need to do in the variable setting reinforcing your dog, especially when you work in operations. If you do nose work, and, and nobody get killed if your dog make a mistake, then uh, I can imagine that you reinforce every find that your dog will. And this sure. will be the best also. If I can do every uh, every time the dog will find something, if I'm able to reinforce, I will do that. But I know in my operational work, it's not able to do that. So I have to build in a variable schedule. Yes. Yeah, the problem is if you make a mistake, a variable of schedules, it's really hard to change behavior. So you have to think about it. No, and you're right. So like Dr. Sapolsky uh, has a great video for those that uh, I use it in my presentation where he talks about dopamine. And the expectation of reward is when dopamine is highest. And it's not when reward's given. It's prior to that. It's the excitement. It's the anticipation of that. And variable reward schedule is one of those things that does the best at keeping those dopamine levels high, which when dopamine levels are high, it creates work. Yeah. You know, it, it makes us want to do something because we know the payoff could be yeah. there. Now, that variable re- reinforcement schedule varies species to species. Some some species like us can, can go a lifetime and, you know, with the hope of payoff. So I'll use like religion. If I do things right on earth and everything's good, I can probably, I can go to heaven. And 
So I will work and work and work and work for something that may or may not be ever obtainable. Mm-hmm. Or uh, you take a dog, you're not going to go six, seven times very often, uh, not giving reinforcement. So their schedule has got to be less. And for me, in my experience and what I've seen, I would say most dogs are in that two to three, you know, variable schedule. You know, I don't typically want to go past three times uh, with the dog, you know, indicating or doing something and not giving reinforcement too often. If you do that, you start, like you said, walking a line of, of other issues that might come from it or problems you might build or extinction that might happen, things like that. Um, the, so, but when used properly, uh, it's very powerful for the dogs. You know, I can walk around my dog. He knows I have a toy in my hand. There's no doggy magic happening. There's no canine sleight of hand that's occurring to make him believe that, oh no, I don't have a toy. No, I have it. It's right Mm -hmm. here. All you need to do is do this work. Once you do this work, you'll hear your signal. And that signal means come get your toy. So, and, and when I'm doing my verbal reward schedule, they'll still hear the signal, but we're going to continue on you know, and continue to the next area or search area. But within one more, two more reps, they're going to get that, that reward mixed in there. It's kind of like what you said. Do you also do variable uh, rewards in the rewards themselves? So, you know, I know he loves this toy, but I also give this one that has a little less value or that one with less value. It still has value, but it's just not the same as its favorite. Do you also use that? Yeah, of course. And, that, and that's something that's uh, powerful too. And in what I'm watching, uh, Border Patrol handlers, they do that quite a bit with, they always walk around with their PVC pipe, wooden dowel, yeah. copper yeah. pipe, and rubber hose. In most cases, most cases, the dogs like the rubber hose because it's plow, you know, uh, bendable and playable and they can, they can crush on it and stuff like that. Uh, they really like that one as opposed to uh, some of the harder yeah. objects. So, but in their schedule, they'll get sometimes the pipe, sometimes the wooden dowel, and then sometimes it's the uh, rubber hose. So I see it used there as far as a toy goes. I don't see it in duration, but I see it in that aspect, which is which is unique for their world as well, and or in this detection dog world as well. You don't see too many handlers willing to. It's always it's, it's always their Kong or it's always their ball on a string, and they they don't change that up too often. Oh. But there's value in in doing that when you when you can. So the you mentioned something earlier when you're talking about imprinting dogs or not necessarily imprinting like but working dogs with odor and you guys typically work with um, small amounts of odors. Yeah. So when you first imprint the dogs, are you imprinting on a larger volume and going smaller, or do you guys imprint small and, and then go larger? How do you guys typically do that? No, I imprint on large and then I go smaller, yeah. but I'm not on imprinting on scent. I in the beginning I also use the eyesight of the dog. So uh, sometimes even the hearing. So um, you can use multiple senses of the dog to uh, help him to understand what is giving me the reinforcement and what is not giving me the reinforcement. So if you have three uh, little jaws and you put in one of the jaws, not only uh, a scent, but also a visual marker, uh, a visual cue, then it's a little bit uh, more interesting. They will learn faster. Don't do it too long, of course. Mm-hmm. Two, three times is more than enough. And then uh, quickly we go only for the scent. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, that's, and that's common. That's what, you know, especially on the science side, when I've done stuff with uh, Texas Tech, we've had these conversations. Everything is start, start larger, then work your way smaller. But, you know, yeah. uh, 
for the listeners that uh, are out there, they get a chance to, you know, it's not just, you know, us, you guys, you know, over in Europe and in Holland do the exact same thing. Science is science, no matter where we're at. That's the best part about this. You know, we can all have different, you know, beliefs and ideologies and things like that. But when it comes down to science, things start to line up a whole lot more, you know, because it's hard to argue data. And always try to uh, make sure that you set up your animal for success. So if you do a repetition of 10 trials in one session, make sure that you set it up in a way that at least 8 out of 10, the dog will be successful Mm -hmm. before you start uh, putting a lesson in your sent articles. That's that's important. Absolutely. I see sometimes people are are starting too low and uh, and dogs for the 10 times only are successful two or three times well then it's not interesting anymore they will stop working for you yes no and i i very much agree now when you guys do this training one of the new things that's starting to become more attention and i'm putting more attention to it as well um when you guys you finished training the dog and you're getting ready to do let's say your version of certification do you guys also do a odor recognition test no matter what type of odor dog it is it has to do a basically like a set lineup um to yeah i I love it i i I did it in the past um normally because i wanted to know uh, is the dog uh, ready is the handler ready that sort of stuff i wanted to have some kind of proof that i say okay i can sleep tonight when those guys are working sure Uh, but now i see in england it's really nice the dsdl that's the the big government uh, agency they're doing all the research over there the dsdl uh, made a test and you can find it on the internet i will send you the yeah, link yeah please so do definitely okay it's really nice they put out a lot of uh, information there how to do a lineup how to test your dog how to test your handler but they also have a lot of information about contamination uh, using clamps using gloves that sort of stuff really basic information that must be known for all dog handlers out there and they use their lineup test um Again, I sent you the information. You can put sure. it there. You can see it. They use their lineup test as a, uh, as a, ooh, how do I say that in English? Of course, I'm from Holland, and English is not my native language, Cameron. So sure. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> it's, a, it's a basic uh, level that you can say, okay, if your dog can do that, then you can do the next one. I, I compare it as uh, uh, getting a driving license mm-hmm. in Europe, you have to do your. You will get your driving license when you do your exam. You cannot drive a Formula One uh, uh, car by then, but you are doing the basic uh, things. You are safe enough to let you go out there on the street. But the years after that, you will be able to become a better driver. And that's the same with the basic level that in England is now there. And it's for the military, for the police, for the customs. That's the average. That's the basic. Uh, skill set you have to be able to perform and i i think that's ideal i i would like that everybody is doing that yeah it's because no go ahead yeah yeah because you also and that's the the background on that you also can collect a lot of data and that's really nice yeah for sure and yeah. the you know it became way more popular for us in the bomb dog world years ago. ATF was kind of the driving force to make that happen. Uh, I was of course, one of the ones at the beginning, like this is stupid. My dog finds odor out in the real world environment. Why do I need to do this? And, uh, I, I failed to see, you know, the practicality and the fairness of it, to be honest with you. It's a, it's a, an examination where all the conditions are the same. And if your dog knows the odor, 
it we should indicate to it and not indicate to non-target. Yeah, again, I was doing this test. I, I saw it uh, um, in England. We were going there to see, well, we were helping them also a little bit, and I saw uh, how they uh, presented it to the dog handlers. I said, well, this is really nice. We bring it to Holland also. So I was presenting it here to some police uh, dog handlers. And again, they were arguing with me because the dogs couldn't do it. And they were arguing me with me about the test and it was stupid. It was rubbish and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, well, go back three days. You were doing um, a detection um, search in a big building. There were some uh, press coming in. All the bags were putting on the ground and you were checking all the bags with your dog. Yeah, the lineup of uh, seven uh, bags with photo equipment. So if you cannot do this, a lineup at seven or eight positions with little canisters, if you cannot do this, how did you do the test uh, or the real operation uh, three days ago? Sure. Well, quiet. Yeah? <laughs> so I, I, I really think it's a basic lineup. You, you need to be able to do that because you're not only testing the dog, you're not only testing the odor recognition, but you're also testing the handler because it's double blind again. And if the handler is a little bit nervous, the dog will react and the dog will start making mistakes. So oh, yeah. I think it's, it's a good one. And, and we're, we're hitting on major things that uh, canine programs and detection should really be focusing on or adding to their thing, which is conducting odor recognition tests, conducting double blind, conducting yeah. controlled negatives where they have no idea there's nothing present. They show up there and they successfully call it out that there's nothing there. You know, as an evaluator myself, I have more trust in canine teams that can go through a significant search area, walk out and successfully tell me there's nothing there because we know the mental pressure that the handlers start putting on themselves if they've gone so long and they haven't found something yet. Every little extra sniff the dog offered now turns into, well, I need to go back and check that. And, yeah. you know, it is something there. And then all of a sudden that handler bias or that influence that that handler feels then gets passed on to the dog at times. And some dogs may react to that. And so for me, I want confident teams to, you know, be able to go through an area. If there's something there, indicate, but also be just as valid in their ability to walk out of that area and say there's nothing there because to me nothing proves your dog knows odor then it can also go through the area and tell you there's no odor there as well and that's something that's not done nearly as often as it should so with yeah. with the science kind of coming into our world even more often than it, like it is now um what what have you seen you've we've covered it a little bit but what have you seen uh, personally as one of the biggest changes as far as science and the dog community kind of coming together? Wow. Um, <laughs> I see, I see they start to speak each other's language. Okay. Yeah. I see, I see they start to become interested in each other. I mm -hmm. see they are starting to become curious and I see they started to respect each other. Yeah. And it's a slow process, but it's really going on. And if you compare this to, to flying, 1903, the first uh, aeroplane was there, the flyer. Mm -hmm. And it flew for, I think, uh, 10 yards or 12 yards or whatever. It was a short uh, thing. But eventually, uh, 30, 36 uh, years later, there was the first transatlantic flight already. Mm -hmm. Because people were uh, combining forces. They were helping each other because they wanted to solve the mystery of flying. And it was the same 
putting a man on the moon when everybody when your president over there mm-hmm. started to say we have to put a man on the moon people started to work together and they were putting a man on the moon yeah and nowadays we still have a lot of uh, advantage of all the materials they found out to make that happen sure in the dog world you see um, and that's a little bit of pity a lot of people are fighting uh, uh, at each other they're judgmental they're yeah. running to they will say i'm the best now you're the best now they are the best they are not sharing information and it's really wonderful and again i really really appreciate what you are doing because you're one of the persons that really shares information you bring it all out there you also uh, bring people together so that's really interesting if we start sharing information if we start helping each other if we start really to do some research if we are not uh, scared of double blinds anymore then we can learn so much together and we can grow so much faster. And eventually, every, everybody will benefit of it. The dog handlers will benefit of it. The civilians will benefit of it. The dogs themselves will benefit of it. So, yeah, I see the interest is going on. The work that the Duke University is doing is really interesting. There's some really nice books out there and a lot of data is gathered. And it's really funny. At the moment, uh, we are working on, on a data app. Mm-hmm. Um, share information uh, when it's ready with you because we are on the, in the first uh, trials now. I'm doing it with some guys uh, from Norway. Uh, I met them some months ago, and we were talking about protocols. And the guy was not really a doctor, and he was more a computer expert. And he said, Simon, can we... Put the protocols that you're describing, can we put them in a in an app and that we are not only giving dog trainers the possibility to look at the protocols when they're doing their work, but mm-hmm. they can collect data right away. And then we make it in a way and we ask people to share it. Then we collect all the data over there so we can make the protocols better. Yeah, that sounds wow. really, really good. Imagine, Cameron, that we all are working uh, all over the world in detection dogs in lineups like the DSTL is describing now for us. Yeah, we're following the same protocols and we collect data not only from ten people or twenty people around you, but we are for, uh, we are collecting data all over the world. The same what you see now with uh, the apps that are collecting our health. Yeah, uh, data. yeah. Years ago, we were busy for 20 years, and then uh, we could collect a little bit of data that we could do some uh, development of new medicines or whatever. Nowadays, what they did 20 years, uh, what they normally use 20 years for, I think we do it now in half a day all over the world. Oh, yeah, no. Dr. Hare did that exactly with Dognition, you know, Dognition.com, by creating that portal where people can then do the tests themselves on their dogs, and then all that data gets uploaded because he had that struggle of, okay, well, I'm at Duke University. There's only so many dogs in this area that we can keep testing, and they came up with that app, and now people can do the tests themselves. The data gets uploaded, and now it's the most... uh, data-filled location when it comes to cognition out there. They've got all kinds of breeds, you know, mixed breeds, ages. There's so much data in there now just because of an application and it allowed people to do these things and share that information. So Cameron, I think we have to work together on the app that I'm describing at the moment. I definitely agree. Without a doubt, I'm all for it. Oh, perfect. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, and it, it was funny as you were mentioning my social media feed as you saw the the uh, 
two days ago, I had posted that comment about untraining an odor. You know, one of the common things yeah. that's happened here in the States with the various States legalizing marijuana, um, yeah. the question always comes up, well, what, what, what do we do with these dogs now that have had marijuana training and how do we deal with this? So I posed yeah. the question as it's, you know, typically posed to me when it's asked, you know, just your feedback on what our industry feels. And there was, you know, despite all the varying points, there was a common theme that was still very clear within that. So then mm-hmm. today I, I put out there as in a scientific uh, way of doing it is say, okay, for those that believe you can do it, prove it. Let's yeah. take a dog yeah. that's been trained on marijuana for at least two years. Now yeah. do whatever you're going to do and allow yeah. us to continually test it for two years to make sure that randomly to see that it no longer alerts to it in a reliable manner. And, yeah. and even then, you know, there's responses like, Oh, be careful about saying, prove it, you know, or one has to back up what they're saying because, you know, on social media you know, and doing so with a real dog. Well, you know, let's just say I said, okay, do it with uh, a dog trained on a spice and then have yeah. it not do it. Then there's going to be all the people that are going to argue that, no, that's not the same. You know, it's not the same as a dog who's a working dog who goes out there and finds marijuana. You oh, sure yeah. you did it here with the dog that's trained on pepper, but now it won't, you know. So, you know, to me, and, and most scientists agree when they do this, we are happy to be proven wrong. It's not about being right. It's about the truth. So mm-hmm. if your conviction or your experience and background says you can do it, by all means do it. But in, in my thing is do it within the same context that it's being tested in. Doing it, you can start off in a context where it's not exactly the same just so you can get some data collection. But in order to truly uh, to demonstrate that it's something that's viable, you have to do it with something that's operational. Yeah. And without that, so when I th- kind of, when I threw that comment out, you know, I prove I have no problem being you know proven wrong if if my belief of it being you know difficult to do, you know, sp- you know, and then you know we talked about on that thread all the different caveats that exist on the legal side of things, and you know yada yada the handler, you know maybe reading a change of behavior the dog may not indicate but shows change of behavior like we talked about a second ago when it's a completely blank area, anytime a dog you know. Cameron, let's let's do it simpler. Okay. I I would I have to say a few things first. One of the things I want to compliment you for is the questions that you put out there. It's giving a lot of information, but something else happening. I see a lot of uh, people putting out questions, and I see all internet exploding and judgmental and questions. <laughs> it's not happening in your questions. So you get it a lot of people around you that are positive people. So my yes. compliments. For that. Uh, another thing I want to say, um, we can easily challenge people to do this in the lineup that the DCL paper is giving exactly us. Exactly what I was thinking. Perfectly. So yes. we can do it. And you don't have to do it with marijuana. You can do it with any kind of odor that you uh, believe in, even with the, the pieces of Kong or whatever method you follow. We can prove it in that way if you want to prove it, if you want to make something about it. And there was something else that popped in my mind, the, the proving thing that was really interesting. That's the same with positive training. I, I'm heavily uh, positive trainer, but there will always be punishment involved in sure. training them. Um, Pavlov and Skinner 
Bob always say they will always be on your shoulder. Classical upfront conditioning will always be yeah. both of the things we are using. But I don't believe people that say I only train positive because Correct. there will always be a negative side there. You have to put, on, uh, put in boundaries. But the problem with negative, the problem with punishment is that the word itself is giving a, a, a meaning and emotion that people start to defend. They are not listening anymore. They start to defend and they, oh, no, you have to train positive. Of course, oh, yeah. 95% of what I'm doing is positive. But there will be some boundaries that say, hey, my dear doggy, you're not allowed to kill the cat of the neighbors. You're not allowed yeah. to die. You're not allowed to bite my children or whatever. There will be boundaries always. And that's ex- that's the same for operational dogs. If there are no boundaries for those dogs, they will kill people. Sure. So that's the same proving. So I like the, the way that you describe proving. Okay, if there are topics, let's prove it. And then it would be ideal if we not prove it with one dog or with 10 dogs, but if we prove it with 500 dogs or 1,000 dogs. That's exactly. Data, data can help us. Yes. And I think maybe, and we are creative people because we know how to reinforce dogs to get the maximum out of it. So Cameron, if we uh, finish this talk and uh, we have some uh, conversations uh, on the later time, I think we can come up with some kind of reinforcement for dog trainers all over the world. That we sure. say, hey, follow these steps. If you collect data in the, in the app that we are making together, uh, we can collect data. We can, the questions that you put out now, on your social media, we can uh, ask dog people to do that and give some reinforcement for that. Uh, perfect. Whatever you can do. I, I, I love it. And, and what, so what we'll do, uh, you and I will get together maybe, you know, every couple of weeks online or whatever, and yeah. let's put some stuff out there on the social media platform. You can, we can do it on yours and mine. And yeah. that way we can start getting that interaction, that feedback, and then apply that or push that towards the uh, research that you're talking about, the, the, the app, and as the stuff that I was talking to you about during this week about OSAC and what they are trying to uh, finalize when it comes to the standards and training principles. I say training principles loosely, but it's always about the standards uh, for detection dogs here in the United States. Yeah, because we have some challenges. Eh? For instance, fentanyl. Fentanyl is a killer, not only for people, but also for yeah. dogs. Yes. So if we can come up with really good training principles that dog trainers understand if we follow this protocol, we will be able to use our dogs to find fentanyl, but in a way that they won't get killed by fentanyl, that will be a a major advantage for everybody involved. Absolutely, because myself thinking about that, I'm like, okay, in a training situation, I can train you know, fentanyl. But what I, my concern is when it goes out and that dog works operationally, uh, the hazards that they'll come in contact because of how the fentanyl is packaged or not packaged, or, you know, there's obviously the number of different risks that exist on the operational side. So in my head personally, I'm like, is the risk versus the reward on that one? And to right now, I, I, I stay on the side of safety. I'd rather, you know, find, uh, you know, because as we all know, the, the most of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, fentanyl has been mixed with heroin or mixed with meth or even marijuana and things like that. But, um, and the dogs will, you know, find that primary chemical they've been trained on before uh, in that situation. But 
you know, I do know I've heard you know, that, that there is success in training dogs on fentanyl by itself. Um, mm-hmm. so, so for me, it's, it's, you know, for, I, I still need to learn like how they're doing it and then how do you, how do you navigate that in an operational sense? Yeah. 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 So, I, hear, I hear that the guys in Canada are really far with it. So yeah, that's what I've heard. That's yeah. what I've heard. They're, they're the ones that have kind of been able to do well with it. There's an agency and I can't remember where maybe a listener will let us know at some point. I want to say it's Arizona, somewhere in the Southwest, uh, that got dogs from the agency in Canada that was trained to do this. So, and I think border patrol or customs are also, you know, delving into this more, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm very curious. I would love to see how it's done in the sense where it's not only safe operationally. Um, and then the training protocol should be very similar, but there's going to be something different because I got to think it's like explosive in a sense. You don't want my, I don't want my dog, uh, having a tendency or a behavior to nudge, touch, do anything to it. Um, where, whereas as drug dogs, we didn't care so much, uh, in the past about if your dog right. happened to nudge something, but, uh, yeah, I'd definitely be curious to see how that's done. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So, well, I, you know, this has been awesome. I love the fact that now we will collaborate, uh, going forward. And for all the listeners that are interested in the collaborations that Simon and I will do, just follow our social media accounts. Simon, how do people follow you? How do people get a hold of you if they have questions after listening to our podcast? Uh, Oh, simonprince.com is my website. So you can find me there. All right. Uh, otherwise, they can find me through you. You okay. always know where to find me, even after 20 years, you know where to find me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I will I'll put that website in my show notes as well. Yeah, and I promise you that I visit you. I, I, I like to, to do that this year because I'm, I'm really stunned by what you're building at the moment. And I really appreciate that you're bringing everybody together. Yeah, and, I, I'm, and I think... Uh, we would have a, it would be a really good, uh, workshop. Uh, we, we put something together, like you said, we'll, we'll work this out. Yeah. Uh, but we'll put a workshop together yeah. and get that out there. And those that are wanting to come and listen to the two of us go over stuff and maybe not even just oh, the two of us, we could probably get a few more people involved yeah. and we could, it, it could be a lot of fun. People get to come to Vegas Get to yeah. hear you, me, and whoever else we get together collaboratively to to speak for a few days and maybe even do some practical training with dogs. And it. uh, it'd be a really, really good time. So the listeners, if you guys want that, uh, email me and let me know. Uh, my email again is Ford, F-O-R-D, at Silverstate, K-9, K the number nine, dot com. And we will put this together, you know, but in the yes. meantime, we will see our social media feeds. We will start collaborating. He and I will get off, you know, you know, through email and what have you put together questions and see if we can't continue to bring this detection dog world closer together and start to bring down some of the walls that uh, keep things divided or uh add sometimes confusion and and even myself some i know some of these questions i put out uh for those that aren't as up on certain things can almost make it more confusing uh than it was when it when it started but the goal that we will have commonly together is to help share information and get everybody uh even more on the same page when it comes to our detection dogs and and some of our best practices or, or just better practices as well Let's put a man on the on the moon again, but now yes, let's do man on the moon, but for yeah. dogs. 
<laughs> well, I'm so thankful for you being on the show. And again, everybody who wants to get a hold of Simon or ask questions, you can email me and I'll have his email in the uh, or his uh, website on the show notes. Again, thank you very much, Simon. It was my pleasure and I really appreciate this, Cameron. Keep on doing the work that you're doing. I will do my best and now I have your help so it'll go even better. Yay, we do it. Okay, Cameron, thank you very much. All right. Well, that concludes this episode with Simon Prinz. Again, I want to thank Simon for taking his time, answering these questions, uh, sharing all that great information. And I hope all of you were able to take something from this episode and maybe apply it to what you do with dogs. Uh, Maybe some things that you do professionally if you're a drug or bomb dog handler, cadaver, and so forth. And those of you that do sport, there's information there that you took away from this. So, again, anybody who wants to reach out, have questions, feel free to email me, Ford at silverstatecanine.com. Also, those that want to donate to the show, like I mentioned earlier, you can do so via PayPal at cpf2137 at gmail.com. That's C as in Charlie, P as in Paul, F as in Frank. 2137 at gmail.com and like I mentioned anything $25 and up is going to be a mention in social media uh, show notes anything $50 and up will be a full on commercial within the show talking about your products and so forth and then anything else is just help that allows me to put out content to you guys at a quicker pace and more frequently so Again, thank you guys so much for all the support. I love the emails I get from everybody. Um, the, it's, it's humbling more often than not. And how far this uh, podcast has reached out around the world, again, takes me back at times. So again, I thank all of you listeners uh, for doing what you do by taking time to listen to me talk to various people and share information within our industry. And then my number one goal is that at the end of the day, we all get better at working with our dogs and we all build that trust and become a great detection dog canine team. Thanks, everybody. And until the next one, we'll see you then.